Welcome to Growth Marketing Today, where marketers, designers, and product owners level up their growth marketing chops from experts in today's top startups. Here's your host, Ramley John. Welcome to episode 152 of Growth Marketing Today. Today I have somebody special, and we're going to be talking to Blake Amel. He is the CMO of Copy AI and founder of Float SO. Particularly, we'll be talking about how he went from 700 to over 45,000 followers in just nine months. No matter how many talk leaders complain that it's just a vanity metric, we all care about increasing our Twitter followers. And that's for a good reason. A respectable follower ratio is fundamental to your brand's credibility and authority, not to mention organic reach on Twitter's timeline. Plus, if you build an engaged audience, you can validate product ideas quicker, get your first 100 customers, and gather valuable feedback. In episode 152, you'll learn from Blake Amel, once again, the CMO of Copy AI and founder of Float SO. First, the benefits of growing your audience on Twitter. Second, how Blake grew his Twitter followers from 700 to 45,000 in nine months. And third, how he validated Float.so and created a waitlist of over 5,000 people on Twitter. Now, before we start, I'd like to thank the sponsor for this episode. This folks help cover the cost of hosting, marketing tools, and everything else so that I can get amazing experts on this show. Today is brought to you by Partner Stacking. It's G2's number one rated partner management platform. Fully support your partner marketing, referral, and reseller channel programs all from a single platform. Take the admin work out of your workflows and focus on partner success and scale. If you're ready to scale revenue through partnerships, visit get.partnerstack.com forward slash GMT to book a free demo today or find the link in the description right now. Let's jump in my chat with Blake. Welcome everybody to another session with uh, with the live expert Q and A product led. Super, super, super excited to have Blake here. Follow him on Twitter. He is a CMO at Copy.ai and founder of Float.so. Blake, dude, how are you doing today? Terrible. <laughs> Why? Why are you terrible? Come on, it's Friday. No, it's just, everybody says I'm good. I, I figured I'd mix it up a little bit. <laughs> Uh, that's true. Terrible. Terribly good. <laughs> I think that's the punchline as you say terrible. Terribly, terribly good. <laughs> I'm terribly adequate. I have had a good week. I am exhausted. My brain is fried, but that probably means I did something worthwhile this week. But you got a, you got a weekend to look forward to, right? I don't really do. We- I don't enjoy weekends. Oh, what? Why? I can't, I'm, I can't relax. I'm not good at relaxing. <laughs> like s- sitting on a couch doing nothing doesn't relax me. I'd rather be doing something proactive interesting is there something that you do that gives you energy so to speak that could be your relaxing time i guess uh i like eating food so i uh i definitely (laughs) i i try whenever i go to a restaurant i will order the weirdest thing i can possibly find that's kind of my go-to move so if i go to uh some random restaurant i will be the person that orders the snails or the uh yeah same you know that that type of stuff but yeah i'm Kind of yeah, I'm I'm kind of a foodie. Like, there's not a ton it. ton here in Utah, so I can't really be all out, but as much right. as I can be. Sweet. Well, let's let's before we get uh, talking about marketing and and growth and all the things that you're working on, I just want to share an interesting thing about you so for people to tune in. Uh, you said you you speak French, and can you talk a little bit about why and how? And you're not Canadian, which is our second language. Just to be clear, I'm not. So, what yeah. is the story behind that? Yeah, so a lot of people 
look at me and they think, um, so I, I lived in France for two years, but a lot of the people in France told me that I was, I looked Swiss. So they thought that I was Swiss because I had a good accent. I was, I'm actually pretty, pretty good at French and I have a good accent and that's kind of what I was known for there. And so they thought I was Swiss because it wasn't like quite perfect French, but it was so close that they they look at me and they're like, okay, you don't look like you're a French person. You don't have like the dark complexion, dark hair, all that good stuff but maybe you're Swiss. So that's, that's kind of like <laughs> my go-to is now like I can kind of convince people that I'm from Switzerland, uh, French, French Switzerland, but I was there for two years. I was a missionary. So you probably see a bunch of the people walking around with name tags. I was one of them. Sorry if I, uh, if I talked to you and you didn't want me to, um, <laughs> but I did that for two years when I was from 19 to 21. And then I got back from France, came back to the United States and started college at 21. Cause that's what they told me I was supposed to do. You know, the whole, the whole, all of society tells you to go to college. And I thought that's what I was supposed to do. And so I started college a little bit later at 21 and never actually finished. And here we are, uh, seven or eight years later, uh, something worked out, I guess. Definitely, definitely something worked out. And we're, we're, let's talk about what uh, things work out, particularly around building an audience. I mean, obviously, we're going to talk about how you were able to build your audience on Twitter from 700 to 46,000 followers. But before we do, I just want to make it clear to folks, why why is building an audience important for businesses? And what what maybe particularly for you, what has it done uh, for the things that you're working on, for copy.ai, for, for .so and everything else? Um, I, I think it's mostly important because nobody cares about you. Um, and that's, that can be kind of hard to hear, but like when you're just starting out, nobody cares about you or what you're doing and they care a whole lot about them themselves and what you can do for them. But that's about where that stops. And when you're building an audience, it shouldn't really stop at an audience. It should go beyond that and into a community, right? Like group of people that actually deeply are invested in a person or a, a, a topic or a thing. And it's really hard to start a company nowadays where you're completely unknown. You've never helped anyone as a person before in the tech space or wherever, whatever space you're in. And then you build this thing and you expect people to care about it. Now that can happen if the product is just like such a no brainer and you can build a community around that. But the biggest advantage is pre-building that audience and building that into a community over time so that when you actually are launching something, people kind of do care about you a little bit, mm. which is not the case up front. I've, I tried this. I tried to launch a bunch of stuff over the past seven or so years. And guess how many of those things worked and I'm still working on today? Exactly zero of them. So, <laughs> and, and a big reason why is because nobody had any reason to, to care about what I was saying or what I was building because I didn't really, I hadn't offered any value to them up front. Mm. I hadn't established trust and that relationship just wasn't there. So I was just asking, 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 and that's not how you build stuff nowadays. I, I love that, that you're, you're kind of, it, there's all this led now, product led, uh, community led. This is like an audience led building stuff. You're actually building the audience before and you're kind of understanding what is it that audience needs is what I'm saying. And you, what I'm hearing is that it kind of do risk launching products. Is that, is that what, what I'm hearing you, you say? I, I think it helps you validate way quicker. So if, mm. if I, if I tweet something or I post something on LinkedIn without any audience, it may actually be a really, really good idea, but I might not get enough 
feedback on that to know whether or not it's really right. a good idea. So I may just keep going on a really bad idea because I didn't get that feedback or I may kill a very good idea because I didn't get that feedback. Whereas if I have some, it doesn't have to be a big audience, but if I have some audience in place, then all of a sudden I can start gathering an idea of, yeah, I should mm. stick with this thing. I should write it out a little bit longer or this really just isn't going to work. I thought this was going to click for X group of people and it really didn't. So that's kind of your gauge there. And it's really interesting you bring up product led, audience led this type of stuff because I think when you have when you have an audience led growth strategy up front going into the product, I think that actually helps you be more product led as well because mm. product led, if you really think about it, that product led growth is all about making it the best possible experience yes. upfront for the customer, for the, yeah. for that user. And when you're audience first, you understand those people better than you possibly could otherwise. So you're going into building that new product, that new SaaS, whatever it is with that mindset of here's exactly who it's for. And here's the process that they would expect to follow to get the most value out of this thing. So I think those are really intertwined. I am totally with you. And I, I say this all the time is because you can, you can, you can try product led and not be audience led and it's not going to work just because it, it getting feedback is not ingrained. Like pe when people sign up for a product led business where there's a free or free trial, you sign up, they, they leave because they don't have any skin into the game. So like, how are you going to know if it's resonating with them if you don't have that connection with them already? And I love your point that, it seems like what I'm hearing is like it's it's a great way to test potential blog post topics and copy uh, on, by sharing it on Twitter because like now you're seeing I said what you do like you're you're tweaking you're kind of testing potential copy and and changes that you're gonna you end up applying and fleshing out into your news maybe your newsletter or into a landing page or or something like that is is that exactly what what you're you're doing for yourself. Yeah, I mean, I wish I was that calculated. It's not quite to that level, but sure, I'll I'll, I'll retract that and say yes. That's exactly what I'm doing. I am a, a mastermind of testing and experimentation. <laughs> but in reality, like yes, I do that. I I put out tweets, and sometimes it's just my thoughts, and I think that it's going to resonate. And if it doesn't, then I don't really care at this point. I just kind of want to talk about things that are important to me sometimes. Um, but a lot of the time I am testing out an idea. How will people resonate with this? Maybe there's some kind of feature that I want to build out for uh, a product. And I don't really want to give that away and just ask directly, but instead indirectly try to figure out what people think about that. Generally, that's a really effective way to do it. So using your, your audience as a way to capture feedback is super valuable. Again, mm. I'm just a huge believer in doing that in a way where it doesn't feel like you're mm. always asking and taking away from people. I do want to still provide as much free knowledge as possible so that they view me as a person, as somebody that just helps people out, gives really good advice, uh, sometimes misses the mark, but a lot of the time is you know pretty thoughtful. That's what I want to be known mm. as. And then when I do need to make an ask, it's a lot easier for me to do that without mm. feeling guilty and, and actually get results because people know that that's not going to be every single mm. day that I'm doing that. Right. And it's totally aligned with your with your brand already. When you're when you're giving that help, right? It's like the natural progression now when you're giving help is how can I how can I learn more? And usually that product is is the thing like that whole Gary V concept, the jab jab right hook, mm -hmm. where value value, and then you you finally like, well, we want to learn more about this. And to your point, you don't it doesn't feel spammy. But as well as it doesn't feel salesy or you, to your to your words, just, it doesn't feel guilty at all with that. Yeah. And an interesting like addition to that jab jab right hook concept is 
from my experience, you can jab, 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 and never, never right hook. And you'll still, you'll still get opportunities. That's Mm. the crazy thing about it. So if you're a freelancer, whatever, whatever you're trying to build an audience around, if you're just constantly giving away free knowledge, you don't even have to ask for people to be your clients. Honestly, like it can help for sure. And sometimes you do want to make that ask, but in theory, like I've seen work a million times where I'll put out a thread about landing pages and then it does really well. And people cared about it. All I was doing was giving away free advice. not asking for anything, basically no call to action. And then I get like 15 DMs saying, Hey, can I hire you as a consultant for, you know, to, to revamp my landing page? So it's like, you don't really even have to ask a lot of the time if you give enough to your audience, but sometimes you, you want to, you know, do a product hunt launch or you're doing something, you need to make that ask, but you can really minimize that stuff and you'll still see growth. I love, I love that. And I, I mean, I'm really sticking this point home around building on just how important it is because as startup, your, your, your features can be copied by anybody, but one thing that can be copied is your story and the audience that you build. It really becomes a competitive, a defendable competitive advantage for companies when there's, when their founders or the CMO uh, has built up an audience because now that, that you can, I can't just copy and paste your Blake's audience, right? It's not, it's not, uh, repeat it's not copyable so so mm-hmm. i can fo- i can copy your tweets but it's not going to do as well i mean is that what you're seeing as well where like it is uh it could be a core competitive advantage for certain businesses when their founders or key employees are actually building the audience on s- s- certain networks yeah i mean real talk getting transparent so copy ai one of our biggest our biggest channel is word of mouth still now that can be tough because like word of mouth you can debate how much you can really control that uh but a lot of that comes through twitter because we have a community on twitter whether it's through paul's audience the copy ai account chris's audience or even my own audience people kind of know us for that and so anytime copy AI is being thrown around. Our names are attached to that and people Mm. share that with their friends. There's a lot of word of mouth going on a consistent basis that if we just keep creating content that keeps going. So that's massive for copy AI for float. um, I I launched, we, we, we announced the wait list probably three months ago and we've been building it ever since then. And three months ago I had like just under maybe 10,000 followers at that point, maybe just under that. Um, but still like, you know, 9,000 followers, a decent enough audience and never before had I seen traction like that. So we have 2000 people on the wait list for float and we sold 75 lifetime deals for about, we have like 12 K in the bank. Wow. Um, and we never, we haven't launched yet. And that's all just to show you just a couple examples, but like building with an audience, building alongside these people and then sharing what you're building. That's really the way to go. Um, and you can your audience is probably it doesn't have to be as big as you think it is it needs to be to to actually be beneficial and and to be able to see some good numbers it's, can you talk a little bit about that that's an interesting point because like people think on oh, ramley or blake i need 10,000 followers or 20,000 or 30 whatever thousands of followers for me to get start seeing an roi or a turn or some kind of effect on this building an audience thing but you're saying Hey man, that's smaller than you you really think it is. And can you, what do you mean by that? And what is like, can can you expound on that a little bit? 
I think we we should all take it, take more advantage and be more grateful when we have a f- smaller follower count. My engagement right now is not as good as it was when I had a smaller follower count. And it only gets worse over time. So you, you the more followers you grow, uh, you're going to have more and more people that are kind of like either fake accounts will def- will always follow you. You can't control that. You'll have really less active accounts that see your name all over the internet. So they follow you for no reason. And then you'll have some people that are diehard fans and, and everything. But most people kind of fall somewhere in the middle where it's like, okay, I can see the value, whatever. But that really over time, you start building up your following, you get more and more of the people in like the middle and bottom tier there where they aren't as active and your engagement rate starts to plummet, even though your follower count goes up. So if you can't figure out what works and what doesn't, when you have a small follower count, then you're never going to figure it out and disadvantage. So don't go out there and buy followers because (laughs) it won't obviously won't do anything. Your engagement rate is going to be terrible. You won't accomplish anything and you won't learn anything. Start from zero get from zero to 10, from 10 to a hundred, hundred to a thousand and figure out what topics are working, what formats are working, what you like talking about so that you'll actually create more of that and relish the time that you have in that growing phase, because you'll learn way more then than you will when you have 10,000 followers. And the learning part is, is important because if you don't adapt and learn and grow, then you're, you kind of just die off and become irrelevant. So you always have to be adapting your content. It's never just going to, you can't just post the same stuff all the time and it's going to be okay. It's not going to work like that. So it's, it's kind of a dangerous thing to actually have a decent amount of followers. That's a really interesting point you made. Uh, You make around that, that, Hey man, there's, there's a, I wouldn't call it a dark side, but there's a caveat to having a large follower count because you're right. Your, the engagement does. And now I'm, Maybe I'm asking you this because I'm curious because I've heard this from people with a lot of follow accounts. Is now there's, do you feel any pressure to perform, so to say, to deliver? You know, to deliver. Now you have like the world stage, mm-hmm. let's say, watching you. Uh, analogies, you're in an arena now and they're looking at you and they're expecting great content to be, to be had. Is there any pressure at all on, your, on the back of your mind that I need to deliver good stuff or else um, then it's, it's uh, I don't know, we're going to lose this or it's not going to connect at all? I think so. Yeah, I think I feel some pressure. Thankfully, I've been creating really bad content for a long time. So (laughs) I know what doesn't work. And I've evolved from that. So I feel pretty comfortable with that pressure. And I'm getting more and more comfortable with trolls and people that like, you know, now I'm really starting to get a lot of people that will say, I totally disagree with this. I'm like, okay, that's cool. It used to affect me a lot more. Um, It definitely got to me. But now it's like, Whatever. Yeah. Um, maybe I can learn something from it. Maybe it's just one person's opinion. Whatever. Doesn't doesn't bother me so much anymore. Um, but there's, I mean, I, I guess there is some pressure, especially when you. I've been writing a ton of threads, and now I've taken right. a break from doing that for a, a week or so, mm. just so I can recharge and come up with good ideas that are actually worthwhile. Because I don't want to just write them for the sake of writing them. Right. But there's still that pressure there. The, the only difference is like if the pressure were there and I had built an audience in the first six months of trying, then I think I would be kind of screwed right now. I'd be devastated because I would feel the pressure, but not know how to handle it. But right. I've been trying to, I've been building an audience for seven years and it's been very slowly snowballing to this point. 
Right. So I've, I've created a lot of stuff that didn't work and that's been the most helpful. Now I kind of know, okay, well I could post this and it may not work, but it'll do okay. At least. Okay. And this, I think will do really well. And sometimes doesn't do that well even, but more and more comfortable with if things flop, you know, for, for me now, like a thread flopping is 500 mm-hmm. likes is a flop. <laughs> so, um, oh, shoot. oh shoot. That's sorry. I'm, I'm not thinking that because 500 likes for a lot of people like myself would be like, damn, this is the best bro. <laughs> so, granted that's, I'm talking about a thread that takes like, you know, five, six hours oh, to put together. Great. And so we're talking about something that I have very high confidence in that I'll push out. Whereas like a normal tweet, a bad, bad, normal tweet after 24 hours would be like a hundred likes for me. But, um, but you see what I'm saying? When you get to this certain point, everything kind of works enough where you can, you could in theory trick yourself into thinking you're doing really well, but you're actually starting to get worse. And you have to be really vigilant about dissecting the numbers and saying, am I actually getting better or are my numbers disproportionately worse than they were when I had a smaller following count? When we come back in just a moment, Blake shares exactly how he was able to generate over 5,000 people on his wait list for a new product he's creating, float.so. Just a quick thanks to our sponsor for this episode. A partner stack, G2's top-rated partner management platform is the only partnership platform built for SaaS, designed to deliver predictable revenue and accelerate growth for businesses and their partners. Companies like Intercom, Webflow, and Monday.com use partner stack to manage and scale their programs, automating partner onboarding, training, payments, and more to empower their partners' success. The past year alone, partners in the PartnerStack network have generated over $100 million in revenue for programs on PartnerStack. Fully support your partner marketing referral and reseller channel programs from a single platform. Now take the admin work out of your workflows and focus on partner success and scale by automating partner onboarding, attribution, engagement, payouts, and compliance. Now tap into the only global B2B partner network supporting over half a million partnerships and counting. If you're ready to scale your revenue to partnerships, visit get.partnerstack.com forward slash GMT to book a demo today or find the link in the description. Let's jump back in my chat with Blake. Because it's something that I've heard from other people who are growing their audience is, especially for people who've gotten past 10,000, it's like, oh man, I feel like I have to perform and if it flops then I've disappointed my audience. But I I, I wanna shift gears and, and now we've been talking for the last 20 minutes around the importance, the value, uh, just to recap, it could be a competitive advantage. The risk launching a new product, it can give you feedback around this. I want to get now into the details, particularly around the how. Uh, I love you made a point. It took you it's seven years. People often think this is an overnight success. The, hey, look at Blake, seven hundred to forty six thousand in in a year. But can you talk a little bit about that? that that process that how did you grow your following uh on, on twitter and you started already talking a little bit about that with like testing out what copy works but particularly I wanna, i'm curious about what kind of stuff did, did you test out and what kind of topics resonate for you particularly uh for you first and then then later on i, I want to dig into how that can apply to, to other people yeah i mean there i could go a thousand different directions here because 
there's not one particular thing that happened, but a couple of things I want to mention up front. First off, I'm a huge believer in quantity leads to quality. So if you're asking, should I post a lot or should I post the very best stuff? The answer is a lot right now. You should post a lot and not worry about it being perfect because you need the learnings up front. If you're going from like a zero or 100 follower count to 10,000 is your goal. If you post one really great tweet, you will not learn nearly as much as if you post 10 eh, tweets. Yeah, that's just the fact of the matter. You have to post a lot. So get really comfortable filling up your content calendar or spontaneously posting however you want to do it. But push out a lot of content so that you can start learning things and use those as A-B tests to say, all right, here's what I'm hoping to get in terms of likes. Here's what I think is realistic. Here's what a push goal would be and see what actually happens. Then track like how certain topics are doing. So if you're talking about startups often and that seems to get really mm. good traction and then you're talking about you know, psychology and that doesn't get as good of traction, maybe go a little bit more into startups and go further with formats and topics within that subset and see what works even deeper than that. That allows you to like get really specific topics. You could create longer form content, especially threads on. So I would say, yeah, again, quantity leads to quality is one big one. So don't be afraid to post a ton. Uh, another thing is initially I learned all the stuff, all this stuff on LinkedIn first. So that's where I was. I'd been posting for a very long time on LinkedIn and then kind of abandoned it because I didn't super like the direction of that platform. <laughs> I'm getting back into it now. I'm getting back into LinkedIn now because I see an opportunity to write longer form content again there. But I had tried Twitter three or four times since like 2012, I signed up or 2013, I signed up for my account on Twitter and I didn't know how to use the thing. I thought it was mm. really, really hard. I didn't get how people were getting engagement on it. It didn't make sense to me. It turns out I just wasn't really writing very well. And I was, mm. I'd always been, a, I'd always been a good writer, like, you know, AP classes in, in high school and all this stuff. Like I was a very good writer, but that was writing essays that was writing in a format that the school taught you to, to write in, not writing for the internet or for how people's brains actually work. And so it's a very different shift. So I had to learn over time, writing on LinkedIn, writing a little bit on Twitter, trying to write blog content, how this actually worked on the internet and how to make compelling things on the internet because it's not the same as in school. So that was a huge mindset shift for me. Once I started learning how to simplify my writing and edit down like crazy is when... I started seeing a little bit of traction. So you can always, there, there's a possibility that you could start on Twitter and just immediately start getting a little bit of traction. Right. The reality is probably more like you're going to be writing in some different place for multiple years before you truly figure it out. And that's okay. Um, it's probably not going to be late. Two years from now on Twitter, you'll probably still be okay to start an account. It'll still be around. So you, you can, you have time to do that, but if I'm just looking at like back in September, when I started getting serious about Twitter again, after leaving, leaving LinkedIn, um, the things that really changed was this concept of, so usually you hear the phrase zig or zag when others zig or, you know, when others <laughs> yeah, yeah. Zig, zag. <laughs> right. I, I go a step further and I think you should zoggle when others zig. <laughs> so, okay. What I, <laughs> what I mean by that is like some, most people are zigging. Some people are zagging. Okay. Nobody, right. nobody zoggles. Zoggling. Nobody's doing okay. that. <laughs> so <laughs> that's that's where you want to be. You want to be the person that's zoggling, that's being like 
radically unique in whatever niche right. you're trying to talk about. So for me, that looks like playing games with people on Twitter. So I would say like, I'm going to, for the next 24 hours, I will audit your website for you for free. I'll give you one piece of advice on your wow. website for free. And I would do that. Or I would say for the next 12 hours or for the next one hour, even I'm really bored. Mm -hmm. I'll draw, I'll draw a terrible picture of you in the next hour. If you comment below and I would do stuff like that just to kind of get the thing, get stuff going. And that was a great way to meet new people and start building friendships. And then the people that were kind of my ideal audience, I would get even closer to and, Basically, they would start following me. That was a little bit helpful. Um, another thing that that I really did was on LinkedIn, I tried to be all storytelling. I tried to make people care about me. And in reality, I should have been getting people to care about me by giving them way too much free mm, information. So good. Not by telling them you know, this is why you should like me. This is why I'm great. This is what I do. And this is why you should hire me. Instead, I should have all, all along just been creating really free, good content right, and make it available to everybody and not worrying about that and letting the rest take care of itself. So when I made that switch on Twitter and I just started giving away everything that I'd ever learned for free right. is when I started getting that traction. I love it. Thank you. Really do, really do appreciate that. I have so many up. I have so many follow up questions to that. First of all, the Zoggle man. That <laughs> I am going to use that someday. <laughs> and if you want me to, I will attribute it to, to Blake. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. That could be. That could be. Honestly, that could be a whole book. I feel like that sounds like a Seth Godin book, like uh, the Purple Cow, or this is the How to Zoggle when everybody's zigging and zagging. <laughs> yeah. New book that you should. Honestly, you should write. <laughs> really that might be yeah, that might be it. I haven't written a book yet, so I'll follow in your footsteps. <laughs> no, let me know, man. I'd love to get tips. We the thing with Zoggle <laughs> is that you always have to find the new Zoggle. <laughs> Sorry, that's right. Yeah. That back then there was that auditing, right? That I, I noticed mm -hmm. a few, and that's what I'm doing as well now. Are there new types of Zoggles <laughs> that you're doing right now that you're trying to think about as well as like you know one type of zoggle is uh, well now it seems like everybody's doing threads a little bit and there's yeah. some, some hate on it and, you know there's people i've seen some people on the marketing twitter that are like ah this is the worst so i'm guessing now people are zagging to, to to threads and what are some things that you're thinking about to 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 for for what's next what are some zoggles that that you're going to try out i mean obviously uh, you, you I mean, people might copy this, so keep that in mind as well. So, what are some things that you're taking it right now to like to stand out? On I don't. I don't really care if people copy this. They can. They can copy whatever I do. I don't care. Um, so for threads, like zoggling for me usually boils down to format because everybody else is writing these really long story threads. I'm writing really long, like I don't know how to how to. It's it's like. Like lists. lists, I guess, actionable. Like everything is very categorized. So right. I'm creating threads that have here's the name of the tool, here's how to use it, here's who's right. good at teaching that tool type of stuff. And that works really well because I'm able to get other people involved and it's really, really helpful. And people can curate that into their own lists or their own tech stack and however they want to use that stuff. So that's one example. But again, this is kind of what I'm facing because now other people are starting to do that more and more and more. And I was certainly not the first person to do this, especially right. to just do long form threads. I pro I think I hold the record from what I've seen for the longest thread where okay. I had 
I had a thre- I had a thread that was like 290 tweets or something like that. What? Um, and a lot of people got mad at me for for that because they got tagged in all of those tweets. So that, that was a lesson learned. But I, I I definitely go a little bit deeper than a lot of people do. Um, that's that's just threads. Other stuff like building in public is one of those moats where mm, yeah. other other people are doing it, but a staggering amount or staggering percentage are still not. It's probably still like ninety nine point nine percent of companies are not building in public. So I'm trying to do that with Copy AI and with Float, make everything transparent, and talk about what we're earning and what we're doing and how we're how we're doing things, making our roadmap public, all that stuff. That is. I view a, a zoggle when other people are trying to make certain things available. We're trying to make pretty much everything available. And there are definitely other companies that have done that. Um, Moz being one that they, they believe in radical transparency and things like that, but it's not super common, but yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. I'm always looking for opportunities to do things that are a little different. The only hard part, like I mentioned is the bigger your audience grows, the more there is a, an expectation of certain types of content and you just you kind of need to stick with what's working a little bit and adapt at the same time. Right. So right now I'm trying to keep keep the gears going while figuring out what's next. And I'm, I can't I don't have a perfect answer for for what's next on that, other than probably integrating other platforms as well and trying to build a little bit better on YouTube, LinkedIn, places like this as well, so that that audience can cross pollinate and have a bit more of a community feel than it even does now. I love it. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that and sharing the soggle <laughs> that you've been doing uh, to, on Twitter. Uh, I, I, I want to get into float. That's a float.so in a little bit uh, because that's an interesting topic around building in public and you called it a moat, which I'll get to in a bit. But another follow-up question I had from your, your response earlier is around writing for Twitter, how it's different from to other places. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And you, you already mentioned formatting, but and, and cutting and editing, but like what what kind of writing? Uh, like how are you writing differently on Twitter than you would, let's say, a blog post or um, on LinkedIn or newsletter or anything else like that? When I when I was writing essays in school, you usually you kind of lead into the hypothesis, which is usually at the end of the first paragraph or kind of in the middle of the second paragraph. It's a little bit further down there, and that's how things go. So you're taught in school, be very formulaic. Uh, this is how this kind of looks. An intro sentence that's just very specific and clear, and and then you kind of flow into the actual meat of the thing. And the hypothesis is usually the best part of the essay and the body's not even that good in school usually. So that that's kind of the formula that you go off of. The mindset shift was, oh, on Twitter or basically on the internet, period, everything has to be super short and every sentence has to grab your attention and push you to the next one. And so if I were taking that essay approach to Twitter, which I definitely see blobs of text on Twitter still, it, it happens. Why would I want to read that? People don't read on the internet. I don't, I don't know how many of us understand this, but like when was the last time you just, you read a blog from start to finish line to line and you never just jumped around. Like people don't read on the internet. They skim on the internet. And if there's some one section that they want to dive into, they will, but they will not read all 1100 words of your blog. I'm sorry if you're under the impression that they will, but it's not going to happen. And so how do I, you know, the question is on, on Twitter, how do I make my feed skimmable? 
How do I make the content stand out enough with the words so that people want to stop and then go to the next line and then go to the next line. And then ultimately they feel invested at that point. So they'll like it or engage with it in some way. That's kind of the flow for Twitter. And it took a long time for me to realize that I thought if the thought was interesting, the format didn't really matter. And people, other people would find it interesting. I was wrong. What really matters uh, outside of having interesting ideas, interesting things to say is the way that you present them. So that first sentence in every tweet is kind of supposed to be jarring just a little Mm. bit, not necessarily like conspiracy theory, shock factor stuff. It doesn't have to be clickbait all the time, right? But I need to be able to tell a difference between what that's saying and what every, all the other hundred people in my feed are saying, or I'll just keep scrolling through and through. So that that can be a a tough thing. So some things that help with this to keep it snappy, keep them very short, try to do like one sentence per line so that it's a lot easier to actually read it and skim through it and don't make them too long unless it's just this massive thread that you're trying to provide a lot of value with. But other than that, that's, that's really the, the advice I would give in writing tweets outside of just writing a lot of them because that's going to teach you more about writing tweets mm. than I can and just giving you formulas. It's fascinating that, you, that you're describing that every sentence needs to lead to the next one. Is that I'm reading this book that Eddie Shaylaner, Sh- 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 a very good copy. Uh, yeah. it's, the, it's the the ad week copywriting Bible or book, something like that. And the guy yep. essentially says, good copy uh, and, and ads or anything. The the purpose of the first sentence is to get you to read the second sentence. <laughs> the purpose of the second sentence is to yep. get you to read the third sentence. And like, this is this is direct response copywriting one one essentially applied to Twitter is is what mm-hmm. I'm I'm hearing essentially. Uh, would you is that something that you would attest to that you would agree? Like, hey, if you're that this is that there's some some direct direct uh, relationship between Twitter copywriting and direct response copywriting almost a hundred percent, especially with the hook. So when when you talk about the hook, it's extremely similar. Basically, all of those principles apply to a hook of a tweet or the first sentence of the tweet, where you're trying to grab somebody's attention initially. Where it's a little bit different is a lot of the time on Twitter you actually make a conscious decision to cut information off and not complete the thought. Whereas, and that that's usually due to the character count, obviously, unless you're doing a full blown thread and going to go deep into a topic. Whereas with direct, direct response, you look at landing pages for like click funnels and stuff like this. Some people can write these really well, but they take 25 minutes to go through. They're super long. So that is a definite distinction between them. And it's fairly obvious, but in Twitter, it's kind of okay to shroud your idea in a little bit of mystery so that the conversation continues in the replies. You can cut the comment or cut the topic in half basically, and just have a hook in the next sentence that only introduces a portion of what you're thinking and start the conversation even further in the comments. So that's not really how it works in direct response necessarily. You want to just be very clear in direct response. You want to get to the point. You have to have social mm-hmm. proof. You have to have metrics. You have to have clear CTAs. And like it, so that obviously there are very clear differences, especially where Twitter, it's just written word. And honestly, that's that's the biggest advantage too. If, if you're using all kinds of emojis and crazy like ASCII art and all this different stuff to formulate your tweets, that's probably not the best way to go. If your tweet can't be interesting enough by what it's saying, 
making it look cooler isn't necessarily answered. The only reason I say like break up the sentences is because it actually makes them easier to read. It's not because it's cool. It just works and it makes it more skimmable. But that's really the only formatting that I really recommend doing. Maybe a bulleted list. But outside of that, don't go crazy with emojis and hashtags and stuff that uglify the tweet. Just just write the thing. And if it's interesting, it stands out. And if it doesn't stand out, Take a hint and just go back and say, I wonder why this didn't resonate and try to dissect that. I, I love it. Thank you. Yeah, that's really, really, I love that distinction between the two and you really did. I'm with you. You don't want to uglify your tweet, so to speak, particularly. I, I want to, man, you, there's something there that you, you mentioned that now I have another follow-up question before I get into float that SO. It's around conversations. You want mm-hmm. This is really leading into conversation with, hey, that may be one of your things that you want to do is, this is your tweet can be a start of the conversation and the reply can be part of it. One of the things that I'm seeing as well is around DMs. I'm curious how you use DMs or direct message in Twitter as part of your quote unquote audience building strategy and how you see maybe that's affecting the, the Twitter algorithm, if at all. I genuinely believe that DMs actually do affect the algorithm positively. I don't have any data to back this up, but if you just think about Twitter's whole purpose is to keep you on site for as long as possible and to use the tools as much as as you possibly can. And when you're in DMs, you really aren't gaming the system and Twitter can tell because when you're, when you're, when you're tweeting about things and retweeting things, you're usually doing that because you want engagement. That's like the main reason that we do this stuff. When you're DMing people, Twitter can see that it's more of a selfless act than actually posting or retweeting or engaging on the feed because only you and one other person can see it. So I do think that the algorithm rewards you for that effort. And the more that you can do it now, don't spam it. Don't go and DM a thousand people because then you'll be flagged as a robot. And my flag, my account has been flagged because I sent way too many DMs in the day and that is a no, no. So don't do that. It's not good. But, um, if you, you know, I, I tried to make it a point early on, especially at least DM five new people a day that I haven't talked to yet. Interesting. And I don't really, I wouldn't really ask them for anything. I'd just be like, Hey, um, I like your recent tweet on this or notice that you're building this. It looks really cool. I'm going to check it out. Sometimes I would just ask for advice from a bigger account. And sometimes they respond most of the time they wouldn't cause it gets really crowded in, in their inboxes. But that was a really good practice for me just to get better at connecting with people and making sure that Twitter wasn't all about getting likes for me, that it was about a little bit more than that. Mm. Um, I also would, I would try early on when I was only getting like one follower per day, one follower per week (laughs) in the very early days, I would try to DM those people and see, and I would ask them the question, what content can I create for you? That's one of my favorite oh, questions shit. that I, I like to ask. So like, what, what content can I create for you? What can I create a thread? Can I create a blog? Can I just make tweets about a specific subject that would be helpful for you to learn about? And that really helped me too. Cause then I started learning more and about what people actually expected from me and kind of relieved a little bit of the pressure and saw more engagement because of that. So go figure. So DMS obviously super positive impact. Don't be a creep in the DMS. <laughs> I, I shouldn't have to say that to the audience here, but don't be a creep. Um, and don't, don't just go asking people for stuff. Don't treat this like LinkedIn right. where you're like, I would like to connect with you. And I would also like you to give me a thousand dollars a month for my SaaS product. Like don't do that stuff. Shoot. Just, just give, give them something valuable or just say hi or ask them for a random fact about themselves. Just build a relationship. That's way more valuable than asking for mm. something. 
I really love that idea of asking people what what kind of content can I create for you because you're now now you're now testing you're you're getting data information but as well as I imagine when somebody I I say hey hey like I love a a tried on I don't know um, the best how direct response is different from Twitter or uh, mm-hmm. Twitter writing you write it and you come back hey Ramley I created this tweet for you. I mean, I would feel special, but as well as I would probably be more likely to engage with it because, you know, like, as you, 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 it's something that I ask for. So I really love that. That's something that I, that I've never heard of as an advice before until now. So thank you for sharing that. I want to shift gears now and let's talk about float and how sure. you launched that on, on Twitter, because yeah. it seems like you, you launched, you, you had this, this approach you said you had a 2000 wait waiting list it's it, can you talk a little bit about how you're you're thinking about uh, launching launching it and how you're building in public and and particularly how that's you know related to building an audience for you yeah so i'll kind of give the whole story here so float is a course creator built on top of notion so anybody that uses notion you can take existing pages, existing notes that are already there and automatically publish them without having to copy and paste to another course creation platform like Teachable or one of these. It's all just in Notion. There's also a dashboard that we add to your Notion workspace that updates all of your sales, feedback, customer interactions, all that stuff in real time. So it's just super slick, very easy. The story behind it is I had this problem. I was building out a course in Notion upfront as kind of my rough draft. And then I was looking for where I should publish it. All the other places were super expensive. There was a learning curve that I didn't really want to go through and didn't have the time to learn the new products. And and there were just a lot of hoops to jump through. Plus, I was going to have to copy and paste and reformat everything that I already had in Notion over to somewhere else. So I decided that would be a really cool idea if I could just automatically create a course from my Notion pages. And so it started off as a problem for me. And then I had this great idea. So naturally, I did what any founder would do in that situation. And I sat on it for three months and didn't do anything. Uh, and that was that was mainly in part because I didn't know how to develop it. I am not a technically skilled person and I cannot code. But when I joined Copy AI, uh, my co-founder at Float, Zach, also works at Copy AI. And he had worked on something called Potion Pages which basically translate your notion translate your notion page into a website so he had a framework there for something very similar and we just needed to build some extra features on top of it and it turned out to be a lot more than a few features it was it, it was a major <laughs> additional build like 3 months worth but we started working on that we right when we had agreed to partner up on it we pretty much launched it right away we didn't want to waste any time so we announced the waitlist as soon as we had a landing page for it the platform wasn't built at all. It was totally non-existent at that point. Um, got initially on the first day, like 1200 people. And it just started trickling in over the past couple months without any further promotion. We got up to 2000 people on the wait list. We sold a few, um, a few lifetime deals for like 12,000 bucks total and got some cash in the bank so that we could build a few more things. And uh, then the Notion API came out right in the middle of this whole thing. So we had to like add on an additional thing that took us an extra month or so because the Notion API came out, but it'll end up being for the best. And so now we're really ramping up for launch next week, actually. And it's, it's going to be... Oh, wow. Very stressful and very exciting. My first SaaS awesome, that I've ever launched. And it's going to be fun. But um, 
the the launch strategy is kind of already yeah, happening right now. Right. So um, this this week I released Twitter MBA, and Twitter MBA is built on top of Float. And so everybody that takes Twitter MBA will see that this was built on float and get an idea of what it looks like. And then next week, this is going to launch. So Twitter MBA has 1500 people taking the course right now. Wow. And that's on, you know, that's some of that overlaps with the notion or the, the float wait list. Some of that doesn't. So we've got some new people in the ecosystem now that are kind of familiar with what float does. And now next week, when we fully launch to everybody, we'll have a bunch of people that have already seen it kind of know how it, how it works and they've interacted with it in the wild and they can start doing it themselves. We actually, we released it to a few creators this week to kind of get them early access. One person already had a small micro course set up beforehand. We got them access and within five minutes, the course was live and they were making money on it. So that's like, that's the benefit here is like, it's super cool to solve a problem where you can, accelerate the speed where someone can create revenue for themselves and share their knowledge. Now you can do that in three to five minutes, which you cannot do with these other platforms. So I'm very, very excited about that. And for the rest of the launch strategy, you know, we'll we'll do a product launch hunt, hunt launch and everything like that. But, um, no plan to do paid ads or anything at this time. Sweet. All audience, man. I really, really love it. And for people who are interested in checking this out, you can sign up, at float.so and i just joined the waitlist because this sounds like a cool tool to launch courses i want to jump into a question actually that came through in the comments from vicky and i'm going to show it on the screen right now he asked mm-hmm. are hashtags relevant at all nowadays and i know like you've talked about uglifying <laughs> it with hashtags yeah. but there's also trending um, for example, Father's Day, I, I I put a tweet around story around how my father got fired, and then he told me to to diversify, and I did use the hashtag Father's Day because it's kind of relevant. But I'm curious what your thoughts are around like trending hashtags or no hashtags at all. Is 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 your point of view? I never use hashtags. I think it matters. It depends on the platform. So with Instagram, it's a little bit more relevant, although relevancy is dying there for hashtags as well with like platforms like LinkedIn and Twitter. I don't believe so. I've never seen a hashtag be responsible for my tweet doing well or doing poorly. What I would say, I know I would flip the question on you as well, Ramley. Like when was the last time you searched for a hashtag on Twitter and like read through the responses? That's something that you do. I, I'm, I'm just genuinely asking. No. Not, I, not that, yeah. No, not, not naturally. I, I, it was only special days. Like Father's Day. I'm curious what people's stories are around it. Seeing pictures, but naturally, like I don't go on trending <laughs> on Twitter. There might right. be some people that do. Yeah. Yeah, if you're if you're trend jacking is the way to grow. Trend jacking, like you're, that term. You're, okay. Yeah, you're going to be really disappointed with long term results mm. because it that is. stuff's so ephemeral that it just dies after a day. So mm. you can get amazing amazing engagement on a trend, but it doesn't last unless you are just always on top of the trends, and that's a very exhausting life. So I would not recommend that. But going back to hashtags. Twitter, I believe most social platforms now are good enough as search engines that they actually understand like the contextual content. Even if you're not using a hashtag, if you would have said Father's Day somewhere in that tweet, they're good enough to understand that that belongs in that trend anyway, for the most part. So you don't actually need to use hashtags and they, like I've mentioned, they uglify the post a lot. <laughs> so um, I, would, I would not recommend anything that does that 
too much, especially more than like one time per post. I, I don't think that the hashtags are going to really drive much for you. It's it's all about the content. Same same here, and and just building up my my Twitter follow as well as like that's the advice I've gotten from from Julian from Sahil Bloom, which I, I've gotten a chance to take their course on that. They're like. Uh, avoid hashtag <laughs> as much as possible just because that to your point it's ugly find the whole whole experience i want to start wrapping up and we, we've talked a lot about different types of building an audience building your your following um doing launches uh on twitter uh, with with float uh if if you can do you have any uh parting advice to product leaders or marketing leaders who are tuning in right now, what would be like that one or two piece of advice you'd like to share? It could be anything we talked about now. It could be something that we haven't talked or touched upon at all yet. Yeah, some things that are top of mind for me right now. Don't be afraid to refresh and reset what you think is important to be working on right now. So especially if you're like leading a marketing team or leading a product team, always be reassessing things on a regular basis, not like every single day or else you'll never get anything done. But uh, don't be scared to just say, I don't really know if this is the most effective thing I should be doing now. I think things have changed and just be open about that. Um, some other things I would say is seek out the advice of people that have already done the stuff that you're trying to do, if at all possible. So if you're trying to grow a company or you're trying to grow a Twitter account or whatever it is, instead of just guessing, like you should publish your own content. You should try to do everything that you could possibly do, but bring that effort into a meeting with somebody that's done it before as well and pick their brain. Uh, you'd be surprised how generous most people are with their time. And if they're not, then, you know, just respect that and move on and try to try to find somebody else. But right. um, yeah, find, find people that you can talk to that have already kind of done some of the things that you hope yeah. to do. And there's a little bit of a hack in there. It's super obvious, but it works. I love it. Thank you so much, Blake. One final question. Where can people find out more about you? Obviously, just Twitter, but do you have a newsletter? Do you have do you want them to add you on LinkedIn? Like this is, you know, if people want to just follow what you're doing on on the internet, where where can you where can they find out more about you? Uh, MySpace is the best place to find me. <laughs> uh, you can you can go to Alta Vista and search for my MySpace. <laughs> Twitter Twitter's the best place. So Twitter at Hey Blake. You can check me out there. My DMs are always open. That's a good starting place. If you want to learn more about Float, it's float.so. If you want to write more copy than you're currently writing and you want help with an AI copywriter, copy.ai. I'm also the chief marketing officer there, so check that out. Uh, yeah, there, there are a lot of places you can reach me. So you can just Google me. Tweet, you know, tweet at me, whatever. I don't really care. You Probably. can even call. You can call me out on Twitter. I don't really care. Shoot, man. Thank you so much for your time, Blake. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. This was fun. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening all the way until the very end. Before I end, I just want to thank the sponsor for this episode. Now, this folks help cover the cost, so I can get amazing experts like Blake on the show and cover costs like the hosting, marketing, and everything else. Thank you to the sponsor. Today is brought to you by Partner Stacking. It's G2's number one rated partner management platform. Fully support your partner marketing, referral, and reseller channel programs all from a single platform. Take the admin work out of your workflows and focus on partner success and scale. If you're ready to scale revenue to partnerships, visit get 
www.partnerstack.com forward slash GMT to book a free demo today or find the link in the description right now. If you'd like to support the show, you've been getting a ton of value from it. There's three easy ways. First of all, subscribe if you haven't already done so and tell a friend about the show. This is how most shows grow is through word of mouth. Second, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Even if you're not using Apple Podcasts, 70 to 80% of the show's listeners are from there and leaving a review helps more people get to know about the show. And third, you can subscribe to the mailing list at growtoday.fm where I share updates about my life, but I also share updates about this podcast so you don't miss out. Well, that's it for this episode. This is your host, Family John. Keep safe and as always, keep on growing. Passion, passion.